Every week, journalists at the University of Florida's College of Journalism and Communications report important stories for the people of North Central Florida and beyond. This is The Rewind from WUFT News. I'm your host today, Malia Leiden. I'll take you through the strongest reporting coming out of our newsroom and a discussion with the journalists who write these stories. There really is no oversight of these local governments. So that's a, that's a big deal in terms of these smaller towns. Of course, it's not a lot of money that they have power over, but there still are concerns for these people who you know, have so many acres between them, but this paper has been what has tied them together all these years. This summer camp is really beloved by a lot of people. And I think the challenge now at hand is how to increase access to that opportunity to more students in the county who haven't had it in the past. So there's two people at UF that have, first of all, have this rare disorder, but they also share the goal of wanting to find a cure one day. After 91 years, the Gilchrist County Journal decided to print its final newspaper. This leaves the county without a local news source, effectively creating a news desert. Though nearby papers are trying to fill in the gaps, the paper leaves behind a long and beloved legacy. The county has over 18,000 residents spread over 350 square miles. The journal's office is located in Trenton, the county's largest municipality with just over 2,000 people. Producer Melissa Fato speaks to WUFT's Alan Halali about the gap this newspaper is leaving behind and what it will mean for the small but tight-knit community. Alan starts by telling us how he found this story. I found it by, I think it was kind of these smaller briefs that were going out, you know, the paper's closing. Um, having uh, been a student here for maybe a year, it wasn't really something that I had heard of before. Um, you know, what WFT encourages you to cover, you know, all these little counties throughout North Central Florida. And that's one that I really hadn't heard of before. So I was curious. I know that uh, there is this narrative that the newspaper business is declining. And I know that that isn't necessarily the case with these national outlets like, um, you know, the Miami Herald, the Washington Post. But I'm cu- I was curious about how this is affecting local communities. Um, so I thought this would be a really interesting example Of course, I didn't know at the time what necessarily was the reason for this specific paper to close, Um, but I was just interested in learning about the story um, and its 91 years of history. So tell me about the Gilchrist County Journal and the people who ran it. So the paper has been around for about 91 years, although that date has changed a couple of times in my my process of reporting. Um, That's what's on their masthead. But... It has been owned by this family um, for quite a while. They're the Ayers family. For the past 45 years, Cindy Jo Ayers, who's in my story, as well as her husband, John Ayers, um, have ran the paper for, like I said, about 45 years. And it was passed to them after their, uh, John's father, um, I believe it was when he passed. And he had started off there as a staffer and eventually took over the paper, I think, You know, they said he bought it for installments of $18 in in the 1930s. So for a while, it's just been uh, Cindy, Joe, and John. You know, as there have been these challenges, they've been forced to take on other roles that um, maybe the executive editor of a paper wouldn't be doing. 
things like bookkeeping, um, photography, that sort of thing. If you've never been out to Gilchrist County, it is very rural. Its largest town is Trenton, which has about 2,000 residents. And although it's growing slowly, um, there really isn't much out there. But yeah, they finally decided to go in for their retirement after about 45 years, um, as they didn't have a family member to pass it on to. Um, although there was potentially a buyer, it was the it was mainstream daily news. They weren't able to come to an agreement. I think it's hard to put a price on um, 91 years of a legacy. So I think they just decided it was better to shutter it off altogether. So you spoke to a few residents of Gilchrist County. What did they have to say about the paper and what it meant to their community? It's way different for maybe these rural residents who go into town every Thursday to go look at the paper. You know, I think in a place like Gainesville, um, you may be subscribed to the Gainesville Sun, you may not, you know, maybe you read the Alligator, WUFT, but, you know, there isn't really one, I would say, like, cohesive unit that, you know, everybody in the county reads. So it is a little bit different, I think, for this small town. You know, a lot of them are worried, you know, people don't really show up to the Bell City Commission <laughs> meetings or, you know, the Gilchrist County Commission or the school board. Um, so they're losing a really important watchdog. And although I'm sure that over the years, as it's just become Cindy, Joe, and John, maybe they haven't been at every single meeting, there really is this important accountability function that they are losing. You know, who's to say that a town that doesn't broadcast its meetings could, you know, have something really newsworthy happen. Maybe they're misappropriating funds or there really is no oversight of these local governments. So that's a, that's a big deal in terms of these smaller towns. Of course, it's not a lot of money that they have power over, but there still are concerns for these people who, you know, have so many acres between them. Um, but this paper has been what has tied them together all these years. So who's going to be filling that gap of news coverage, if anyone? Yeah, um, I spoke with the Dixie County Advocate Editor. They're actually in the process of onboarding a new Gilchrist County reporter. Um, one of the experts that I, that I spoke to kind of compared it to like drinking out of a fire hose. You know, there really is this sense of what do I need to know? And a lot of residents are being kept in the dark now that there is no paper. You mentioned in your reporting a bill about legal notices. Uh, what might this bill do to affect smaller newspapers in Florida? In speaking with both uh, Catherine McKinney, the editor of the Dixie County Advocate, and Cindy Joe of the journal, they both expressed that that would kind of be the nail in the coffin. It would be the last thing that they really have going for them. The thing that makes them money is being able to print these legal notices in their paper. You know, it's been the law for a while that, you know, city commission, county commission, they have to print uh, where their meetings are going to be. That takes up space. Um, you know, things like crime and, and um, like court proceedings and that sort of thing also is required by law to be in the paper. And if you take that away, it just, it takes a really big source of income and not that these papers are being profitable at all. I, Cindy, Joe, and John were breaking even for, you know, a decade since 2008, but it really could kind of topple it over into the, you're losing money. But even if these papers are just barely profitable, they still play a really important role in the community. 
Uh, you spoke to an expert at Northwestern University. What did she have to say about the effects of losing one's newspaper? Yeah, uh, it's definitely something that I was interested in learning more about. But, you know, it's, it's really just these small nuances. Not knowing who's running for local government could affect voter participation rates. You know, just having a general lack of awareness in what's happening in the government can inspire local officials to um, do whatever they please if they're, it's not going to be written about in the paper. So there is the sense of being in the dark, right? Not knowing what's going on behind closed doors. Of course, these are public meetings, but you know, there's there's not that many people in the county, and you know, who's going to really show up to a 12-hour meeting for the school board? Really, no one. That was kind of the function of the paper. So there is this concern of accountability being lost. WUFT's Alan Haleli speaking with producer Melissa Fato about North Central Florida newspapers attempting to remedy Kilchrist County's news desert. I'm Leah Leiden and you're listening to The Rewind from WUFT News. Stay with us. Behold the shepherd tone. The Tinkerbell effect. Hillbilly humanism. The Overton window. Hyper objects. The Bill Gates problem. The Zuckerberg delusion. Times are changing, and so is our vocabulary. Apodophobia. The public trust. Parasocial relationship. The anti-bandwagon fallacy. Monopoly and monopsony. Let On the Media be your guide as we explore the future together. Sunday morning at 10 on WUFT 89.1-90.1. Sometimes positive change takes innovation and sometimes courage. And she had a bright idea to start a nonprofit with the intent of helping him and men and women coming home from Iraq and Afghanistan. Sometimes it takes both. I'm Sue Wagner, and each Sunday morning at 7, I have conversations with the people who seem to bring out something good in all of us. That's Tell Me About It Sunday mornings at 7 on the WUFT Media app and online at WUFT.org. Explore the history and culture of our state as the Florida Historical Society presents Florida Frontiers. Discover how history impacts our lives today as we travel to historic sites from Pensacola to Key West and all points in between. From native people to Spanish settlers to cracker cowmen and beyond, we examine the diverse heritage of the Sunshine State. That's Florida Frontiers presented by the Florida Historical Society. Sunday morning at 7.30 on WUFT 89.1-90.1. funded by the Alachua County School Board, was recently under investigation for misuse of taxpayer money. After a look into the camp's management, Director Scott Burton was cleared of any charges related to the camp's finances. However, the school board and surrounding members of the community are advising changes and having discussions about the camp's accessibility to local students. Katie Heisen, WUFT's inequity reporter and a Report for America Corps member, reported on the history of the camp and how its management is raising questions across the school board. Producer Ariana Asperu begins by giving an overview of the story. 
So your story dives into the history and possible future changes to Camp Crystal Lake, a local camp owned and funded by the Alachua County School Board. The camp's director was under investigation recently for violating school board guidelines, and while they were cleared of any wrongdoings, the investigation has sparked some changes in the camp and the school board. First, let's start off with the camp itself. Tell me about Camp Crystal Lake. Even though Camp Crystal Lake is owned by the Alachua County School Board, it's actually located in Clay County. It's 140 acres of woods and freshwater lakes that the county bought in 1949 for less than $1,000, so an extreme bargain. During the school year, they offer free educational trips for all the public elementary schools and eight charter schools. Over the summer, they run a summer camp with a long local history here. The camp's expenditures outweigh the revenue. It usually receives about half a million dollars a year from the school district to cover the difference and keep it operating year-round. But the finances have become a concern for some members of the school district. So some of the big questions raised about the camp come down to their finances. What were some of those concerns? Carly Simon, who was later fired from the superintendent position, accused the camp of being a mismanagement of taxpayer funds. The current discussion started with an email she sent to the school board members back in November, raising concerns that sparked the internal investigation, but she also spoke during public comment at Tuesday's school board workshop. There were a variety of concerns, but many of them centered on the scholarship program. And what were some of these issues raised about the scholarships? The amount of money being given was well over the amount donated for scholarships, and there was no need-based metric used to allocate them. Simon said it appeared that Gifts of camp tuition were given to friends of the director, including very wealthy families, a former superintendent, and even out-of-county campers who don't pay taxes to the district. Simon did receive a letter from the camp director's lawyer signaling his intent to sue her for defamation. And as we mentioned earlier, the investigation found that Burton didn't violate any school policies. But Simon has recommended for an external investigation to be done on the camp itself. That's right. At, at the workshop yesterday during public comment, Simon alleged that some of the internal investigators had also received camp scholarships and that though no probable cause was found, she said there were policies violated that weren't listed in the investigation. So she called for an external investigation of the camp. Neither the school board nor Burton responded directly to those comments at the workshop. A district spokesperson directed me back to the original investigation when I asked about her public, Simon's public comments, and Burton's lawyer said he does not have a response and just reiterated that the investigation cleared him of wrongdoing. Burton declined to speak with me directly for this story through his lawyer because there are ongoing legal matters related to these issues. So from your story, we also learned that increased access to the camp is something that board members and residents are looking to improve on. The allocation of the camp scholarships is one of the factors that may be preventing more students of color from becoming involved. 
What other factors may be creating barriers for students looking to enroll in this camp? So there are common equity issues of the registration being online when many don't have internet access. There's the transportation and the cost. But there's also a newer issue of how spots for the camp are prioritized. In 2015, the camp announced that returning campers and their siblings would be given spots first before new campers. There's historically been a really long wait list every summer, and the camp places a value in students being able to be lifelong campers. They even have people sending their kids and grandkids to the camp even after they've moved away. So only about 85% of campers come from Alachua County currently. So it can be hard for new students to get a spot. And then some told me that many black families in the county don't even know the camp exists, that the camp operates primarily on word of mouth buzz. So some have advocated for or intentional outreach to underrepresented communities. And as you mentioned in the story, there's discussions that could change how this camp runs in the future. Kind of tell me a little bit about what's next for the story. The school board is now looking at options to separate out the funding to just give district funds to the educational school year programs and make the summer camp self-sustaining. The camp also formed a scholarship committee and revised the scholarship process for the upcoming summer. The application has places to mark whether the family receives certain income-based benefits and to attach their tax returns. This summer camp is really beloved by a lot of people, and I think the challenge now at hand is how to increase access to that opportunity to more students in the county who haven't had it in the past. WUFT's Inequity Reporter and Report for America Corps member Katie Heisen speaking with producer Ariana Asperu about her reporting on Camp Crystal Lake. Camper fees and interest brought in just over $847,000 in the 2018-2019 to fiscal year before the COVID-19 pandemic hit, and the camp spent about $1.5 million. Following the investigation, a scholarship committee was developed with representation from the camp's equity department. This is one step toward increasing access to Camp Crystal Lake. You're listening to The Rewind from WUFT News. Stay with us. Big ideas are reshaping our world. From our jobs... If they're paying you way more than you expected to get, ask yourself, what is it exactly they want you to do? To what we eat. That message that we've finally made the sweet that your body wants... Yeah, that ad changed the world. New ideas come to life every week on Innovation Hub. Sunday morning at 11 on WUFT 89.1-90.1. Jada Wright Green's love for historic homes began when she visited the Mary McLeod Bethune House in Daytona. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, will discuss the book Florida's Historic African American Homes. We'll talk about black and white progressive women and the first female astronaut trainees. That's Florida Frontiers, Sunday morning at 7.30 on WUFT 
to University of Florida students are working to end their rare disease. The students have dreamt about finding a cure for Friedrich's ataxia after finding out they were diagnosed with the condition. This is a neuromuscular genetic disorder, and according to John Hopkins Medicine, symptoms for the condition typically begin showing between ages 5 and 15, but it can also develop later in life. Producer Sarah Mandile spoke with WUFT reporter Lexi Carson about what this disease is and how it has affected these students. Lexi begins by telling us who these students are. They are both PhD students, um, Christian and Chandra, and they are in the PhD program in genetics and um, genomics to work to possibly find a cure for the disease that they have that currently has no cure. What is that disease and how does it affect the body? So when I spoke with Christian, he compared it a lot to ALS. You know, it's a neurological disorder, so it progresses over time and basically stress um, affects it a lot. So how somebody will get it is a gene defect that is inherited from their parents, which Christian, both his parents tested positive for the gene. And basically it affects, you know, their speech. They're slower in talking and it will affect their balance. Um, when I met both of them, they had to use a walker to help them stand up um, straight. It affects their vision too. Christian specifically, his eyesight's gotten a lot worse. How did Christian and Chandra meet? So they both went to undergrad at USF and they met at the disability office. Chandra was getting a some service for one of her classes, an accommodation letter, and they told her that, you know, there was another student at the school who came by uh, and was asking for the same thing, that they had the disease too. And, you know, this disease that affects one in 50,000 people, you know, what are the odds that there is another student here that has the disease as well? So um, they told her the name and then they connected and um, just became friends pretty quickly. So in your article, you mentioned that both of them have goals of studying Friedrich's ataxia. What are they currently studying at UF and what do they see themselves doing next? So um, they're studying genetics and genomics. So they do a lot of research, um, like hands-on research with mice, mice that have um, certain, you know, disorders. They're testing their research on them. And Christian came here specifically because he wanted to get into a lab that worked specifically, um, you know, with FA, but because of COVID, um, unfortunately, he wasn't able to, um, so that was disappointing, but he's working to do that, and they're still working in other genetic disorders, 
Um, but of course, both of them said that their goal is to, you know, work in FA, and that's the reason why they came here. What are some of the treatments that are currently available for FA? Because, you know, it affects their balance, their speech, um, their nervous system. What they do is they go to physical therapy pretty consistently. They do that. And then there's speech therapy, occupational therapy, and um, they have, you know, they have to use other resources to help them with day-to-day tasks because um, their balance isn't good. So they have to have braces to help them stand up straight. Um, if their scoliosis is severe, there is the option for surgery there. But Christian, his eyesight has gotten a lot worse, as I mentioned. So um, just kind of handling it like any other person, pretty much. But with them, their um, disease, it increases um, rapidly. I know speaking to Christian, when he got here um, a few years ago, he was able to walk independently, but the stress of school, he says he wakes up every day, and his whole day consists of his research with his program and it's been very stressful so over the past few years he's now not um, able to walk independently and I think that that's increased um, pretty negatively over the past year specifically. How did you find this story? Yeah so I went to this fundraising event called Ride Ataxia. And I had planned to just cover the event. But when I was there, there was just so many people just passionate about the cause. I met both of them there. Um, I did not speak to Chandra there. I mainly met Christian's whole family. And um I just, you know, interviewed them because I had planned to cover the event. But when speaking with him, he told me that he was in his PhD program. And I was like, you know, what are you studying? Like, that's so awesome that, you know, you're still so interested in this higher education. And he said he was actually studying to hopefully work towards, you know, research and finding a cure one day for this disease that they were there raising money. So the whole narrative of the story changed. I spoke with him again after that. And he told me that his friend who I had met briefly there, Chandra, had the disease as well. And then he told me that they were actually roommates at UF. So I was like, wow, so there's two people at UF that are study that have, first of all, have this rare um, disorder, but they also share the goal of wanting to find a cure one day. Um, I really admire and respect that about them, that they have such, you know, a positive outlook on life and they're working to, you know, make a change and spend their time doing something that, you know, means a lot to them.
That was WUFT's Lexi Carson speaking with producer Sarah Mandile about two UF students working together to find a cure to end their rare disease. For this episode, for more on each story, make sure to check out WUFT.org. The Rewind from WUFT News is produced by Ariana Asperu, Sarah Mandile, Melissa Fato, and Malia Leiden. Our executive producer is Sky LeBron. WUFT News is operated out of the College of Journalism and Communications at the University of Florida. Remember to follow us at WUFT News on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for the latest stories. I'm Malia Leiden. Thanks for listening.